Hi there, I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ's Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. It's the latest stories from the week, and it's designed to catch you up on some highlights from our community. Thanks so much for listening for the week of November 13th, 2023. The city of Phoenix this month completed an unprecedented effort to clear its largest homeless encampment. Over six months, officials moved hundreds of unhoused people into shelters. And while the city met its court-ordered deadline to address homelessness in one neighborhood, many indicators suggest the crisis is only getting worse across our region. Katherine Davis-Young reports. Over the past year, more than 13,000 people in Maricopa County became homeless. Jay Duval, Raquel Parra, Kevin Kirchhoff, and Diario Lowry were among them. My, my roommate got taken out, and I couldn't afford it by myself anymore. I had an apartment out there on uh, 59th Avenue Northern, and I was wrongfully evicted. I came to Phoenix to get sober and get my cirrhosis. I came here just for a better change in life. Metro Phoenix's homeless population has grown by 50% in the past five years. That dramatic spike has been in spite of major efforts from the city, county, and state to address the issue. One high-profile example was a court case in which the city of Phoenix was ordered to disperse its largest encampment of unsheltered people. Earlier this month, the city finished clearing the area, moving hundreds of people into new temporary shelters. Amy Schwabenlender is CEO of Human Services Campus, the hub of homelessness organizations downtown. She says prohibiting camping on several blocks around the campus may have made homelessness less visible in Phoenix, but... I hope people don't lose sight of the fact that whatever happens here right around us That's not the totality of homelessness in Maricopa County. In fact, as Phoenix cleared the zone, the region's overall homeless population continued to increase. The Maricopa Association of Governments reports for every 10 unsheltered people in the county getting into housing, 19 people are now becoming homeless. The problem isn't just persisting, it's growing. Jackson Fonder is CEO of UMOM, the state's largest shelter for homeless families. He points out Metro Phoenix is gaining more than 150 residents per day, putting constant pressure on the housing market. Rents have risen nearly 40 percent just since 2019, pushing prices even further out of reach for low-wage earners. And as many forms of pandemic-era assistance have dried up, eviction filings in Maricopa County have reached record levels. Meanwhile, demand for shelter at UMOM has also risen to an all-time high. The number of families on Priority 1 and Priority 2 list right now is 311. So I've been at UMOM for three years. That's the first time we've hit the number 300. Fonder says families now wait eight weeks to get into the shelter, and affordable housing is so scarce it's becoming harder for families in the shelter to move out. Fonder says that's creating a bottleneck. The longer the length of stay directly correlates to the wait list on the front end. It's not just a trend at UMOM. Countywide, the length of time people are unhoused has grown, as has the number of people considered chronically homeless. Cleo Warner is a human services planner with the Maricopa Association of Governments, which collects data on homelessness across the region. The longer that we have people in these more crisis states of homelessness, 
and not being able to move on to housing, the more stress it's putting on those interventions, as well as the resources that we have available. But resources have never been more abundant. State lawmakers made a record investment in the state's housing trust fund this year. The County Board of Supervisors has directed half a billion dollars toward housing solutions since 2020. The city of Phoenix added more than 1,000 shelter beds since 2022 and has plans to bring on nearly 800 more in the next two years. Rachel Milney with Phoenix's Office of Homeless Solutions says shelter beds won't solve the root causes of housing instability. But she says the city made an unprecedented effort over the past six months to bring people living in the zone indoors and says work won't stop there. The things that we need to really focus on as a region is preventing as many people as possible from experiencing homelessness, and once they do, helping them exit quickly into a permanent housing destination. But back at the UMOM shelter, Jackson Fonder worries the solutions from the state, county, and city still just aren't coming fast enough. I guess I just want more people grabbing a shovel and doing things rather than another darn task force or a meeting to talk about what the problem is. For now, he says his organization and others will keep doing their best to assist unsheltered clients, even as the wait list for services grows longer and longer. Catherine Davis-Young, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In Tribal Natural Resources, which is supported in part by a grant from the Katina Foundation. Since 2012, the American Indian Veterans National Memorial at the Heard Museum has honored Indigenous service members through Native song and dance. Gabriel Pietrazio has this report. The 11th annual Veterans Sunset Tribute on the 11th of November was a night brimming with uniquely native sounds emanating from downtown Phoenix, from thundering drums to jingling bells, clanking of wood, even chirping by the Cha B2 Apache crown dancers who bless veterans in attendance with their honor dance. Priscilla Percy Paestua is the mother of Lorianne Paestua, a Hopi and the first indigenous female soldier killed in action. The U.S. Army specialist died during her deployment to Iraq two decades ago. We think that when they come home from war, it's over. But don't give up on them, please. Let them know you are proud of them and that you love them. Congressman Ruben Gallego also served in Iraq in the U.S. Marines two years after Paestua died. On Saturday, he helped distribute tokens of service to veterans, many of whom were Native Americans. They actually taught me so much. Don't forget them. Don't forget their sacrifice. Especially Paestua. He is a great mentor for many of us that we grew up hearing those stories. Gabriel Pietrazio, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. Thanks for listening. In business news, for the past year and a half, Desert Foothills Library in Cave Creek has been working with the Arizona Memory Project and other partners on a so-called Living Library. The program is dedicated to preserving the history of the towns of Cave Creek and Carefree. As Jill Ryan reports, the official kickoff is this weekend with a staged reading of a new play titled Looking Back. Come on in and acquaint yourselves with the most notorious establishment and cowman in all of Cave Creek. Bud Miller. It's a Saturday rehearsal and the first run-through of Looking Back, 
There are eight actors, some playing multiple roles, and the story is based on real Arizonans using archived letters from the Cave Creek Museum, among other records, as its foundation. In 1950, married couple Dick and Evie Angle purchased Cowtrack Ranch about 45 minutes north of downtown Phoenix. Located in what is now carefree, the couple drew criticism for subdividing the land into what is now known as Cowtrack Estates. Playwright Andrea Markowitz says the play unveils hidden histories, but the controversies are familiar. We're still going through the same issues that uh, Phoenix was going through in the 1950s as far as development versus open space, water issues, drought, expansion and annexation, population growth. Markowitz directs and acts in the play, performing as a disgruntled neighbor who despises the idea of Dick and Evie considering subdivision. Or subdivision? Yeah. I don't want no subdivision on my property. Well, technically, it's not your property. Technically, it's close enough. Well, how about you, Bible? I've already doing... done that. The inspiration for the play goes beyond the museum letters. Markowitz previously lived in Cave Creek, but now calls Carefree home. When she heard of the local library's idea to collect oral histories of the town's residents, she saw a real opportunity. It's called the Living Library Program, and they were going to focus on oral histories and combine the resources from the Cave Creek Museum and new recordings that would be conducted by both the museum and Desert Foothills Library. The library's executive director, Deborah Lay, says the program stems from a $4,000 grant awarded in May 2022. And together with a variety of partners and volunteers, including Desert Foothills Theater and the Arizona Memory Project, the program officially debuts this Friday. This is where the library will present its first of three showings of Looking Back. What we were really in search of were the memories of those in Cave Creek and the surrounding area, how they came here. What happened when they were here years ago? And how has the land been transformed? How have they been transformed? The Living Library program also features art installations and oral histories documented on the Arizona Memory Project website, all accessible at Desert Foothills Library. The place seems to have piqued residents' interests. Looking back is nearly sold out as of this recording. The two actors playing Dick and Evie Angle are a married couple who live in Cowtrack Estates, the modern-day setting of the play. Peter Strupp plays Dick. We always knew that where we lived is a special place with gorgeous views and amazing sunsets, but this play has given us the opportunity to understand the people who are behind that property and who made the fateful decision to subdivide it. So they lost exclusive use of their land, but we gained a beautiful home to live in these past decades. Proceeds for this weekend's shows will go to the library as well as the theater. There is also a separate experience on Saturday where patrons can mingle with Markowitz and the cast. Jill Ryan, KJZZ News, Phoenix. In education news. A parent of two students at Desert Mountain High School says his children were bullied after Tom Horn, the state superintendent of public instruction, accused two student clubs of spreading anti-Semitic materials on campus. From our education desk, Bridget Dowd reports. 
Student-led chapters of UNICEF and Amnesty International met earlier this month at Desert Mountain to discuss the Israel-Palestinian conflict. Last week, Horn called materials distributed at the meeting anti-Semitic and anti-American and advised schools to keep the organizations off their campuses. David Shammy is a board member for the Arizona chapter of the Council on American-Islamic Relations and the parent of two students who are in those clubs. He says Horn misrepresented what happened at the school. My sons and other students who are part of these clubs have now faced backlash, being called Nazis, being associated with Hitler, despite what was clearly not an anti-Semitic presentation. A presentation at the club meeting supported Palestinians in Gaza and accused Israel of human rights violations. Bridget Dowd, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And this is the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast. In Fronteras News. Flagstaff City Council is considering doing away with advertising at its airport after it was threatened with a lawsuit alleging it violated the First Amendment rights of the owner of a northern Arizona shooting range and gun rental business. From the Fronteras desk in Flagstaff, Micho Morisco has more. At issue is a silent 10-second video that opens with Let's Go Shooting in Flagstaff at Timberline Firearms. It depicts four smiling young people holding rifles, then cuts away to owner Rob Wilson, supervising as one of them opens fire on a target. I don't, I don't see, I don't think Timberline was denied the ability to run an ad at the airport. Deputy City Attorney Kevin Finsell laid out the situation for the Flagstaff City Council Tuesday night. The city says Wilson first paid to run his ad as a series of photos for four weeks in 2019 at its Pulliam Airport. Wilson paid the city's vendor at the time, Clear Channel, $400 for that. Now Wilson wants to run the 10-second video. But city officials claimed it violates its advertising policy by showing depictions of violence or antisocial behavior. The Goldwater Institute, a libertarian think tank, has taken up its cause, accusing Flagstaff of censorship. Finsel said that's not true and that city staff tried to work with Wilson on an acceptable ad. Again, I think Timberline wanted to run a certain ad at the airport and that staff took issue with or wanted to discuss and possibly edit. Timberline, and they have every right to, wanted to stick to the ad that they produced, um, wanted to, to have that ad run, and, and that's the ad that was not run. But um, I don't think that means that Timberline was denied the ability to advertise at our airport. He told the council that some areas of the city, like parks or sidewalks, could be considered open public forums, but not necessarily airports. Um, we consider our airport, our facilities, um, the airport and the recreation facilities to be non-public forums. After butting heads with Wilson, the city drafted up a new advertisement policy in September. It includes barring ads for the sale or use of firearms. But now, under the threat of a lawsuit by the Goldwater Institute, City Council Member Lori Matthews says Flagstaff may get out of the advertising business at the airport altogether. I just, I just get a little concerned about people's interpretation of what may be offensive or depiction of something. Um, So I'm kind of swaying to just opt out of any advertising at the airport. That way. We're not having these discussions every time there's something that we didn't think about. Flagstaff City Manager Greg Clifton agreed. The forum needs to be closed. Uh, The advertisement at the airport along with the advertisement at some of our recreational facilities, uh, is not a big revenue generator uh, here. We're we're talking maybe tens of thousands of dollars um, annually. 
Flagstaff Mayor Becky Daggett is also on board. I would support um, just not having an open forum in terms of advertising. As for Wilson, he says he's disappointed at what he presumes is the inevitable decision at stake. Uh, I wish I could say I was surprised, um, but I am mostly just disappointed that um, rather than continue to uphold their oath to protect and preserve the Constitution and the rights that it provides to us, um, they've chose instead to um, stop all advertising, which to me seems very myopic. At least for now, the city is still accepting advertising at the airport. The matter isn't over, and neither is the Goldwater Institute's threat to sue over Wilson's case. Michel Marisco, KJZZ News, Flagstaff. Now from KJZZ Original Productions. It turns out you can die of a broken heart. Here's the show co-host, Mark Brody. Grieving the death of a loved one can be extremely difficult for us mentally and emotionally, but new research shows it can also negatively impact our physical health, specifically in heart function and blood pressure. Mary Frances O'Connor is an associate professor of psychology at the University of Arizona and author of The Grieving Brain. She worked on this research and joins me to talk more about it. And Mary Frances, what are some of the key takeaways for you from this research connecting grief to physical health? Well, I was so fascinated for many years by the idea of dying of a broken heart. And although we say that and we think that's sort of a metaphor, it turns out that that's empirically actually the case. So, for example, uh, a man in the first six months after the death of his wife is almost twice as likely to himself die as compared to a married man during that same period of time. So that's quite an increase in risk. And this research that we were doing was really trying to figure out the mechanisms for why that might be. Yeah. Why does that happen? Like, why does grief affect our heart function the way it does? Well, it turns out that grieving is incredibly stressful. So we think about the emotional aspect of grief. If you think of a grieving person, you think of someone who might be sad or anxious, but it's a physical experience as well. So we know from research previous to the studies that we've been doing that your heart rate goes up for a little while. Overall, people's blood pressure tends to go up a little bit for the first few months. And so in our study, we were very curious about whether the risk is the same all the time, or are there particular parts of the day that are more risky than others? And we had the idea that perhaps it is during a wave of grief that we're seeing the most stress on the heart. So how do you define a wave of grief? I mean, I think a lot of people who have gone through grief kind of have a feeling of it. But how do you try to quantify that for purposes of a research study? We really wanted to find a way to have a bereaved participant in our study experience a wave of grief while they were in the laboratory. So you can think of the way that a cardiologist 
the cardiologist doesn't just measure your heart rate all the time, 24 hours a day, although they might do that, but they might also do a treadmill stress test. And so we developed what you might think of as an emotional stress test. We had bereaved participants come to the lab and hooked them up with an EKG. And then we asked them about a time that they had been feeling really alone since the death of their loved one. So you can understand that for many people that evokes a wave of grief. And then with this sort of standardized set of questions, we kept them in that feeling for about 10 minutes so that we could see how their their heart reacted and recovered. Did you find that otherwise when they were maybe experiencing not a wave of grief, but I guess maybe for lack of a better phrase, low level grief, did their heart rate go back to normal? Was their blood pressure back in sort of a normal range? So we found that this may not surprise people who've experienced grief, but we did find that during a wave of grief, in general, on average, people's blood pressure did go up. And it might surprise people to know that it went up as much as if they were doing moderate exercise, even though they're just sitting in a chair talking to us. But the emotional impact means that their blood pressure goes up like they were exercising. But that it wasn't actually the most interesting part of the study. What was most interesting was when people came in, we gave them a a standard questionnaire asking about their grief symptoms, what their grief severity was like. And what we discovered was those who came in with the highest grief severity also experienced the greatest increase in blood pressure during that wave of grief. And the reason that's so important is it helps us to identify who might be experiencing the most stress on their heart. Well, so I guess, does this mean then that for people who are experiencing grief, they need to make sure that they keep up with checkups or maybe medication needs to be involved here for for people in particularly difficult situations? I do think that recognizing bereavement is a risk period, uh, especially that early couple of months, uh, that people do need to be thinking about getting their regular checkup just in their regular doctor's office because hypertension, it doesn't require any fancy equipment to detect. It's simply a matter of going to a doctor and having your blood pressure taken. But you know, most of us, uh, if we've been caring for a loved one who's died, all of our attention, all of our effort has been focused on on the one who's who's died, which makes sense, of course, but it may be at the neglect of one's own health. And so it is the time to make sure you're you're seeing your regular doctor, you're going to your dentist, you're making sure you've got your, your mammogram or your colonoscopy, doing all those things to care for your physical body that's grieving in addition to your emotional life. Do you think that there are other emotional stressors or things going on sort of in our in our brains and our mental health that might have a similar kind of impact on our physical health like this? Absolutely. So we know that stress affects blood pressure in general. It isn't only the stress of bereavement. Um, so stresses when you start a new job or even good stresses like getting married or getting a promotion, um, those are also going to be times when our body is probably reacting with changes in our physiology. It's not that the stress of bereavement is so unique. It's that we forget that during bereavement, there is a physical stress. 
Based on what you found in this study, is there anything else that you're looking to try to find out sort of related to this going forward? Well, I think for me, the question is largely, what can we do about these uh, acute grief-related risks? Um, and so other research in my laboratory has looked at progressive muscle relaxation, for example, which is a method where we teach people how to tense and then relax the major muscle groups in their body. And research in the lab has shown that this is actually very effective um, for dealing with grief as well as the physical stress of grief. And I think it's because, you know, during grief, we sometimes don't feel like we have a very big toolkit of what to do, how to help ourselves. And having a, a method of really allowing our body to relax can give us a break during this really stressful grieving period. All right. That is Mary Frances O'Connor, Associate Professor of Psychology at the University of Arizona and author of The Grieving Brain. Mary Frances, thanks so much for the conversation. Thanks, Mark. And finally, in science news. What if you knew you had Alzheimer's disease before you had any symptoms? Blood tests that can detect amyloid plaque and tau, the proteins involved in dementia, will soon be available. Kathy Ritchie reports. Right now, the only way to diagnose Alzheimer's is with a PET scan, a lumbar puncture, or after death. Blood tests could change that. Dr. Danny Cabral is an assistant professor of neurology and psychiatry at the University of Arizona. And now we're at the point that we have these blood tests that are highly accurate to identify the building up of the proteins that are the hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. So amyloid and tau. So that is what Shelley was found to have was building up. And so on the trajectory to potentially develop Alzheimer's symptoms as a memory loss. Shelley, who asked not to use her last name, is participating in a clinical trial. And uh, did find out that I do have a couple of genes that are prone to the Alzheimer's. Shelley's mother had Alzheimer's, so knowing that she has what Cabral calls preclinical Alzheimer's disease wasn't shocking. Knowing is a little bit empowering. It is scary. You think of things differently with your life every day. Cabral and others will attend this Saturday's dementia-friendly summit in Tempe to talk more about the potential of blood tests. Kathy Ritchie, KJZZ News, Phoenix. And you've been listening to the Stories You Don't Want to Miss podcast, made possible in part by Helios Education Foundation and Alliance Bank, the Vitalist Health Foundation, the Intel Corporation, and Beach Fleischman, the Arizona Community Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thank you for listening to KJZZ and for your generous support. I'm Tiara Vian, and this is KJZZ, your news and information station.